0: Good evening. evening. Oh, now I know it's a little dreary outside. Good evening. evening. My name is Vivian Fisher and I manage the African American department and I welcome you here this evening on behalf of Dr. Carla Hayden, now CEO, the Board of Trustees and Directors, and the Pratt staff. It is my pleasure to introduce this evening's speaker Rachel L. Swans, who is a journalist and author. She is a correspondent for the New York Times, based in Washington, D.C., and she has written about domestic policy and national politics, reporting on immigration, the presidential campaigns of 2004 and 8, and First Lady Michelle Obama and her role in the Obama White House. She has worked overseas, for the Times, reporting from Russia, Cuba, and Southern Africa. And in Africa, she served as Johannesburg's Bureau Chief. While she was there, she reported on the turmoil in Zimbabwe, the challenges of racial reconciliation in South Africa, and the Civil War in Angola. Prior to her joining the Times in 1995, Ms. Swans worked for the Miami Herald, reporting from Haiti and Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And she covered both the Los Angeles riots and the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew. She received her BA from Howard University with a major in Spanish and a minor in African-Caribbean international relations. And she also received from the University of Kent in Canterbury, England, her MA. It is my pleasure to welcome... Rachel L. Swarns.
1: Thank you so much for coming. Um very happy to see you all especially on a evening that looks like it could be so stormy. So thank you. I'm going to talk a little bit about how I got Started on this project and what I found. I'll read a teeny bit and show you some nice old photos, and then I'd be happy to take any questions that you might have. Um, As you heard, um, I'm a reporter with the New York Times, I work in Washington. And um, I've covered many, many things uh, at the Times um, since I started there in 1995. Um, But this project emerged because I was covering Michelle Obama and the first family. And this was something of an unusual assignment. Typically, papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post don't assign one person to cover the first lady. That's um, a job that the White House reporters who cover the president and chase him around the briefing room and fly with him on Air Force One do when they have time. But there was a sense um, this time, right after the election in 2008, that we should do things a little differently. And we journalists often think of ourselves as writing the first draft of history, and there was a thought, I think the thought was that this family, this first African-American family, in this house, this White House, built in part by slave labor, was going to be written about for generations to come, and there was a sense that we should document that. And so we, I decided to take this assignment, and uh, we We, shortly before the inauguration, we hired a genealogist. We were, one of my colleagues was working on a a piece about the president and his rainbow family. And at the very last minute, we decided, oh, you know, maybe we should do a little digging into Michelle Obama's background. As journalists often do, we didn't give the woman very much time at all, and so she didn't come up with very much during that, uh, for that first piece that ran on Inauguration Day. But unbeknownst to us, she kept digging. And in September of that first year that the Obamas were in the White House in 2009, she called and said, you know, I think I found something pretty remarkable. Would you guys be interested? We were interested. So I ended up getting on a plane and flying to Birmingham, where I spent time in the archives, visited cemeteries, knocked on doors at churches, and tried to find anyone at all who knew anything about a man by the name of Dolphus Shields. He was the First Lady's great-great-grandfather, and he was biracial. And what emerged from that reporting was a story that ran on the front page of the New York Times in October of 2009 that talked about Dolphus's parents. The First Lady's great-great-great-grandmother, whose name was Melvinia, She was a slave girl valued at $475 in 1852 and the first lady's great-great-great-grandfather who was a white man whose identity was a mystery. So this story ran on the front page of the New York Times in October of 2009, and the very next day I got an email from a publisher saying, wow, do you think you could expand on that and, and research you know all of the branches of the First Lady's family tree and write a book? And I have to say, my first response was, absolutely not. <laughs> I've never written a book before. I have young children. How in the world would I finance such a thing? Um, and my husband, who is always hiding in the back of the room, <laughs> said to me, don't do that. Don't say no. And he reminded me of what I told him when I first came back from that trip uh, to Birmingham. And what I told him about was a visit I made to a cemetery in Birmingham looking for the grave of Dolphus Shields. I was looking for his tombstone. And this was a cemetery called Lawn Memorial Cemetery, an old, historic, but very neglected cemetery, a place where, you know, the grass is growing up to your knees. And I arrived there one sunny afternoon, armed with my records from the archives, which told me exactly where the plot should be, and which I realized immediately once I arrived was absolutely meaningless. And I spent several hours searching, searching, Um, without finding anything, and if there are, among you, uh, amateur genealogists or historians, you know that sometimes that's what these searches are like. But there was a moment when I was standing there, very aware that I was not going to find what I was looking for, that I realized that there was nothing I'd rather be doing than searching through the nation's history in that way. So he persuaded me. And so I decided to, do, uh, to embark on this project. But it was still quite something to begin. In, in January of 2010, I started. And what I knew was just the little that we had reported on in the New York Times about Melvinia and her son and this mysterious father of Dolphus Shields. And I truly had no idea where the, where the story would go Um, But I traveled around the country, uh, visiting libraries, archives, uh, more cemeteries, (laughs) tracking down uh, people, speaking to the First Lady's relatives, and anyone who knew anything about her ancestors. And what I found was a really remarkable story, a fascinating story. The First Lady's ancestors were slaves who toiled on vast rice plantations in South Carolina and picked cotton on smaller farms in Georgia. They were Irish Americans who nurtured their dreams in a new land and fought for the Confederacy. They were mixed race people who lived free for decades before the Civil War. And over and over again, there were these remarkable women. The First Lady stands on the shoulders of some women who lived amazing lives, even though they were constrained, enormously constrained, by the circumstances and the times in which they lived. So I told you a little bit about Melvinia, her great-great-great-grandmother. She was torn away from everyone she held dear when she was about eight years old. She lived in a on a farm in Spartanburg, South Carolina and when her master died, was shipped off to Georgia. Yet somehow, as an adult woman, she defied the odds and reunited with one of the two of the slaves that had been close to her as a child. The First Lady's great-great-grandmother, Mary Moton, who the family stories have it, was part Cherokee, escaped from slavery and arrived in Illinois so so early. You know, Michelle Obama often describes herself as a South Side girl and she was born on the South Side of Chicago. And so were her parents, but none of her family knew how early those ancestors had arrived and Mary Moton arrived in Illinois in the 1860s. And Mary's daughter, another one of these remarkable women, her name was Phoebe, and she was born in 1879 after the end of slavery. Um, And she was a woman, a sharecropper's daughter, who decided that she was not going to be a farmer's wife. She didn't want to have anything to do with the farming life. And in her 20s, she traveled to about four different cities. I describe her in my book as the wanderer. And she arrived in Chicago. She was among the first of the First Lady's ancestors to see the skyscrapers of Chicago in 1908 long before the migration got into full swing, at a time when the south side of Chicago was predominantly white and you could still hear the chatter of German and Swedish in the streets. So you had this amazing history. Um, But part of what I wanted to do was to figure out how this related to where we are today. And I was interested in trying to solve the mystery of the First Lady's Roots. I told you about this white ancestor in the First Lady's family tree. Mrs. Obama has long suspected that she had white ancestry, like many of us. Many African Americans know that. But didn't know, like many of us don't know, who or when or where. And I was able to solve that mystery by using DNA testing. And I, what I did was I found the descendants of Melvinia, And I found the descendants of her owner. I suspected because of uh, the records that uh, Dolphus' father, the First Lady's great-great-grandfather, that his father was probably a member of his owner's family. And so I started on this process of trying to persuade people to do this kind of testing. This was not easy. You can imagine, perhaps, what it might be like if... A reporter were to knock on your door and say, "By the way, I think your family may have owned the first lady 's family that 's something else and it was um, and it was difficult for a lot of people not only uh, was there was I telling them that their ancestors owned the first lady 's family, um, but they were they may well the DNA testing may well show that they were related. And that this connection uh, was one that originated in one of the most painful times in our history, and the question of what happened to Melvinia is one of the unanswered questions of the book: "Was she raped?" which was something that happened quite often, as we know in history. So this was, So some of, some of these uh, white descendants said no, they didn't want to know, and they didn't want to be a part of the book. And thank you, goodbye) <laughs> But some of them some of them wanted to know, even though it was complicated and difficult. And I told you that there are a lot of strong women in this book. And they're not only relegated to history. Um, some of the strong women in the book are modern-day people who are living today. There is one uh, descendant of Melvinia. Her name is Jewel Barkley. She lives in Cleveland, Ohio. She was Dolphus' great-granddaughter. And a white woman by the name of Joan Tribble who lives in the suburbs of Atlanta who decided to take on this history and to see where it would take her even though she knew that it might be painful. And what I discovered as I dug into history and talked to people who were wrestling with this um, today was that I had in front of me in this book the sweep of American history through the story of this family. Um, and um, it was more powerful to me because of that. And with these modern day people, I felt people who are alive and well, older women uh, who were going on this journey with me, I realized that their story, their contemporary story, the contemporary grappling with this history was as important as the history itself. And what I wanted to try and do was capture both the story of her family tree, but also the story of how slavery reverberates still in the lives of so many of us, black, white, and in between. And um, I'm going to read a little bit from the book now. And um, and then I'll show you some pictures. One of the great things about the First Lady's family is that you see the the vast range of experiences um, during that period of time in slavery. So she had ancestors who were slave owners. She had ancestors who were slaves. She had ancestors who were free. Um, but often we have... Um, an idea of white slave owners and of slavery, which is quite different from the reality from, for a lot of people, both black and white. And that's what this section deals with. It deals with when Melvinia was sent from the place that she knew in South Carolina as an, eight little, an eight-year-old girl and shipped off to Georgia. The Southern Plantation is a fixture of the American imagination. Close your eyes and you can almost see it. The grand white manor with its ornate columns. The sweeping expanse of green clover. The stately magnolias filling the warm spring breezes with their sweet perfume. Some conjure up visions of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. His 5,000 acre mountain estate in Virginia with its 43 rooms, 8 fireplaces and 200 slaves. Others invoke Scarlett O'Hara's mythical mansion in Gone with the Wind, which bustled with the clink of fine china and silver, and the comings and goings of the housemaids and more than a hundred enslaved laborers. That fabled mansion stood near Jonesboro, Georgia, only miles from the farm where Melvinia ended up sometime around 1852. But Melvinia's new home, situated in the state's rough upcountry, was nothing like those vast plantations that often come to mind. She never knew that kind of life. When Melvinia arrived in 1852, she stepped into a place of dirt roads and neglected bridges, a community of plain and unassuming people, according to observers, who raised their families in log cabins or rough-hewn cottages. The fields were filled with white men, many of them illiterate or nearly so, who handled the backbreaking labor of planting, plowing, and harvesting, corn, wheat, and cotton on their own. It was the kind of place that many wealthy Southerners dismissed as backward and provincial. Archibald T. Burke, a slave owner who settled in the region around the same time that Melvinia did, worried that his wealthy fiancé would be unhappy with his choice of a new home. I am sometimes fearful that you will not be pleased with the society in the upcountry he wrote his bride-to-be. You will think it strange to see white people living in log cabins, and you will find all sorts of society here except aristocracy. It is unlikely that anyone asked Melvinia her thoughts on the matter, but the little girl might have been startled too when she laid eyes on her new home and her new master, Henry Wells Shields. He was a man in his prime a property owner, in his mid-thirties and the married patriarch of a growing clan that already included eight children. Yet he, like the other white yeoman farmers in the county, worked the land with his own hands. He had never owned a slave in his life. There is no record of this first encounter between Melvinia and Henry, between the dark-eyed slave girl and her new white master. There is no way to know whether Henry felt at a loss at that moment uncertain of his bearings as he looked at this young child suddenly thrust into his care, or whether he had been eagerly waiting, praying for this day to come. Born in South Carolina, Henry had been trying for at least four years to carve out a future for himself in the rocky, middling soil in upcountry Georgia. Melvinia's arrival and that of her enslaved companions, Tom and Mandrew, completely transformed his prospects. He was now, suddenly, a member of the county elite, the tiny, privileged class of men who owned human property. As for Melvinia, she was forced to adjust to adjust to a completely new existence. She had been a little girl nurtured in a bustling community of African Americans. Now she would be one of only three black slaves in a sea of white faces. Once the favorite slave of a wealthy family, she was now the prized possession of a farmer still struggling to make a name for himself. No matter how much or how little she knew about Henry that day she stood before him in Georgia, she certainly understood that her fate and her future and her very survival rested in the hands of a man who was still learning how to be a master. I should say before I go on to uh, the photos, which will give you a sense of some of uh, the people I've been talking about, that the First Lady also has some Baltimore history. So many of her ancestors were scattered across the South, and sometime in the early 1900s, um, a great aunt of hers left North Carolina um, and moved to Baltimore with her husband. And they arrived here sometime around 1907, and lived. And I'm going to mispronounce it. Someone's going to, per, someone will help me. Um, I'm going to spell it so I won't embarrass myself. A i s q u i, with That's where they lived. <laughs> <laughs> she um, uh, and he. He was. Um, he worked in a quarry and they were they were here during a time when segregation was first beginning to take hold some of you may know that baltimore has the distinction of passing some of the earliest uh residential segregation legislation and they lived here during that time and they didn't stay long and maybe that's why <laughs> Um, but they ended up playing an important part, an important role in the First Lady's family because sometime in the 19 teens, um, the First Lady's grandmother ended up an orphan in North Carolina. And we don't know what happened to her parents. Um, but her great aunt and uncle collected that little girl and brought her with them uh, when they went to Chicago. And um, that grandmother of uh, the first lady, her name was Rebecca. Her, she's descended from that group of free blacks uh, who lived during the before the Civil War in the North Carolina, Virginia area. Her last name was Jumper, but she adopted um, the name of uh, these relatives of hers. She was known as Rebecca Coleman uh, for much of her life. So the first lady's ancestry. Extends all across the country, even here. Now I'm going to try and show you some of these photos. I am not a techie person, so let's hope that the instructions I had I could follow. Do I have to be closer? Oh, that was not the right one. That's, there we go. No. Is our guy here? Sorry. Okay. Can I get it back? This is Michelle Obama as a baby with her mother, and her father, and her brother, Craig, who you guys may know is a basketball coach right now. And um, Melvinia and Dolphus are um, on her mother's side of the family. This is uh, Joan Triple, the woman who I told you lives outside of Atlanta. Who was willing to uh, do DNA testing and to dig into history to see what it showed? And this is Jewel Barkley, the woman who lives in Cleveland, who is the woman in contemporary times who also the black woman. She's a uh, the great granddaughter of Dolphus Shields, who was the first lady's great great grandfather. Dolphus's daughter Pearl. Um, ended up moving to Cleveland. So the family, he, he left, he was born in slavery in Georgia, moved to Birmingham, and uh, it, the family sort of split during the migration. His daughter, Pearl, ended up working in Cleveland, and Jewel, the woman you saw before, is her granddaughter, and a branch of the family, his grandson, ended up moving to Chicago. And this is Dolphus Shields. You can see him on your right, the First Lady's great great grandfather, who was biracial, and he was quite a remarkable person in the First Lady's family tree. As I mentioned, he was born into slavery around eighteen sixty and um sometime in the eighteen eighties moved set off to Birmingham and he lived quite a remarkable life. He was a carpenter who managed to buy his own house in 1900, uh, who ran his own business, a carpentry business, in downtown Birmingham, who founded two churches there that still stand today, and was so well-known in church circles in um, black Birmingham that when he died the news appeared on the front page of the black newspaper at the time. He moved the family from um, you know, the farming life, from the sharecropping life into the working class. And this is Dolphus again as an older man. And Dolphus again with his extended family in front of his house in Birmingham. This is the tombstone of Henry Wells Shields, uh, the man who owned Melvinia, who I told you about, Irish-American. We don't know much about those Irish ancestors. The family story on the white side of the family is that they came in the 1700s and that Henry's grandfather, Andrew, fought in the Revolutionary War. Um, If that's true, then the First Lady could join the daughters of the American Revolution. (laughs) We don't know, though. It's been hard for me to establish whether that is actually true. Um, This is the tombstone of Henry's son, Charles Marion Shields, and the DNA testing suggests that he was the most likely father of Dolphus Shields. This is the First Lady's aunt on her father's side, who was very helpful in doing, as I did this research... And this is Phoebe, who I told you about, the one who didn't want life in the farms and traveled from city to city until she arrived in Chicago in 1908. And that's her husband, James Preston Johnson, who was also another wandering man who was a a minister, uh, a mason, and he owned several shoe repair shops in Chicago and the surrounds of Chicago. And this is Mary Moton, who I told you about. That's Phoebe's mother, who arrived in Illinois, southern Illinois, in the 1860s. And the family says that, as the story goes, that she had Cherokee ancestry. And when you look at her, you could see that that could be. Um, you know, I don't know for sure, and I don't know if many of you watch Henry Louis Gates' um, programs, but... A lot of African Americans have these stories of Native American ancestry that don't always turn out to be true. So she looks; she was mixed race for sure, but we don't know, we don't know exactly what her history was. And this is the first lady's uh, great grandfather who left. He was the last of her grandparents. Um, I'm sorry, the last to arrive. And actually, that's uh, sometime around um, 1931. He was. The golden boy in his town of Georgetown, South Carolina, he was. Uh, he had dreams of being an electrical engineer. Uh, was so intelligent that his in-laws described him as uh, an Einstein. Um, but unfortunately for him, he arrived in Chicago with big dreams in the promised land, um, right in the midst of the depression, and really struggled um, and had a, a, a difficult difficult time. It was not the kind of gilded life that he expected. Um, These are my photos, and um, there's one thing that I might try and do. After um, I wrote an article that was excerpted from the book um, that appeared the week that the book was published in June, and after it came out, I got an email from family from a woman saying hey you know I think that my husband is part of that White Shields family and not only that but you know those people that you talk about you know the first lady's white great 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 grandfather Charles you know we have a photo of him and we have a photo of the um the slave owner Henry and I was kind of like really could this be um and in fact um They were cousins of Joan's, who you saw in the photo. I was kind of like, Joan, have you heard of these? She's like, oh, yeah, Jared and Melvin and all these people. I was like, okay. So they are really relatives, and she had actually seen the photo. And I was kind of like, Joan, you saw this photo? I've been looking for a photo (laughs) for a long time, though she had a very bad copy of it. I'm going to try just very briefly to see if I can show it to you because it really is, it was the first uh, images that we were able to publish. It came out after the book Um, came out sadly but we did run a picture in the New York Times I might just check quickly It's it's counting down the seconds for us. Thank you for your patience. (laughs) So um, the bearded man um, is Henry, who I was reading to you uh, about. um, Who... No, the bearded man. He's the only... The the older man, the elderly man with the beard. who's seated. Yep. Yes. He's seated with the long white beard. And and so he is the one who... um, inherited um, Melvinia and uh, two other slaves. The woman um, who's sitting next to him, there's a child in between them, is his wife. And the only reason why um, he ended up owning um, the slaves was because he married the wife of a wealthy uh, man. And so when uh, his wife's Father died. They inherited the slaves, and this was something. It solved a bit of a puzzle for some of the white descendants who told me things like, "Well, I always heard that they never had two nickels to rub together those shields," um, which, which was true. Um, but they didn't. They didn't buy. They were not wealthy people. They inherited their slaves. And the man who's looking kind of contempt over, who's uh, third from the right, third from the left. I'm sorry. Who's kind of looking up? Um, that's Charles, and so that's the man who DNA testing is, suggests is the most likely uh, father of Dolphus Shields. So, and the First Lady's great, great, great grandfather. The, uh, the one with the mustache, third from the left, you see the... T- Charles. T- Charles. Is it the right? The oh, from your, yes, of course. Yes, from your right. Yes, from your right, Yes third from your right. Yes, who's kind of looking off into the distance. Yeah, and you might see in this, because people have asked me, there are two African-Americans you can see just a bit behind Charles's shoulder. And um, can you see them? My husband is saying So, um, people have asked, well, who are they? And actually, this family um, knows everybody's name. They had, uh, this picture dates back, they think, to about 1884, and those are, uh, from the, we're not sure exactly, but the names are not names of people in the First Lady's family, but they do correspond to names of other slave owners who lived around uh, the Shields family um, at the time of slavery, so... They may have been um, people who were working for this family. And uh, one interesting, um, in addition to uh, finding this photo after this article ran, um, the town of, um, of Clayton County, Georgia, where Melvinia lived as a slave, um, decided after that first article ran to erect a monument to her. And they unveiled that um, last month. And they invited some of Melvinia's descendants there. And at the very last minute, I thought, well, I don't know, maybe some of the white descendants would come. And they did. And so the black extended distant cousins and the white distant cousins of the First Lady, um, the descendants of the slave and slave owner, and cousins themselves, (laughs) met for the first time in uh, Georgia a month ago and um no <laughs> it was something to see though um they posed for photos together and um talked and had a meal together and um you know i don't know that anyone thinks they'll keep in touch forever but it was still quite a day anyway i want to thank you guys for listening and i would be happy to take any questions that anyone has thank you so the question was what were the sources of uh for some of this research and really you know i did what a lot of people are doing you know with their own families which is you know death records census records marriage license property records because uh, some you know african americans appear in property records wills um I was able to, you know, sometimes I I used some sources that gave me um, a sense of the period, if not of the individuals. So for that, I relied on the Freedmen's Bureau records where I didn't find, for instance, any of her um, ancestors listed by name, but Melvinia lived in Clayton County, Georgia, and I found the records from that period of time which described What was happening in that, you know, people were looking for relatives, moving all over the place, um, struggling because of drought. Um, Civil War military records, uh, pension records. Um, There's something cool called the Southern Claims Commission records, if people know. Um, Some of those are wonderful. This is after the war. You could. apply to the government to get uh, reimbursed for what you lost during the war. And those are wonderful because they have first-person... You had to write an affidavit, and so you get first-person accounts of what happened. So those were some of the records that I relied on. Yes? Um, You
0: mentioned, uh, speaking with Michelle Obama, but I I wondered, did you interview her or...
1: or Mm -hmm. It's a good question, and it's one I often get in, and I always am so sad to tell people that, no, I didn't get to interview the First Lady. She has a policy, or or her mother, but first the First Lady. She has a policy of not doing book interviews, and that's the way it is. And so her mother and brother also declined my request for an interview. Um, But other members of the family were helpful. Uh, Her aunt, uh, an uncle great-aunt, great-uncle, cousins, um, and um, on her on her mother's side, Jewel, because the family split in that way, those distant cousins on her mother's side, Jewel, and her family were also very helpful. Yes. Uh, did, you, did the first lady a copy of, of your book? Yes. And so... Basically, I hoped, kept hoping that she might agree to an interview. But anyway, um, I briefed her staff along the way um, as I was doing my research and provided copies of the book to her staff and to her before publication. So I don't know what she thinks, uh, but I hope that she finds it fascinating. Yes. No, so for instance, Jewel Barkley had no idea that she was related uh, to the First Lady. Because what happened, and this was, the migration was like this, you know. People uh, got split up, and so the Chicago, she knew that there was, that some members of the family ended up in Chicago, but she didn't know that they were those <laughs> those folks. And um, and the Chicago branch didn't know about the Cleveland branch. Um, the, the
0: family was
1: talking about mm-hmm. it, on her mother's side. Oh, mother's side. This is her mother's side of the family, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. And her father's side is, um, so Mary Moton, the one who they think is Cherokee, was the father's side. And Phoebe, who arrived in Chicago really early, was also his father's side. Uh, on her father's side, they were the ones who arrived in Illinois super, super early. Yes. Yes. So I was went on before the book came out. I my husband will tell you I had a stack, and I was going to FedEx. I was like, I got to get them the book before. So they did read it, um, and uh, you know they have they have been very very um, happy about it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in the back of the book, I saw something about about DNA mm-hmm. and family finding
0: testing. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to look okay. at. Hmm.
1: Right, I know, there's the question. As you might imagine, you don't really go asking the First Lady for her DNA. <laughs> so what I did was I knew that Dolphus Shields was her great-great-grandfather, and, so, and I thought that his father was probably in his owner's family. And so I searched for his descendants and then the descendants of Henry, and then I was able to make a match that way. And I did use... Um, uh professor gates at harvard who does a lot of this for his tv show um gave me some advice and i used um he uses a couple of dna companies but i'd use family tree dna for for this work and just to follow mm-hmm. up um, uh, were there any other and I, incidentally i used the same company. oh is that right yeah um, were there any other elements in there besides the, um, the oh that? it's interesting i think yes there was some um I think there was some Middle Eastern, um, and I'm not sure where that came. I did not find, uh, we were hopeful of finding the Native American ancestry to see if we could confirm the family, the oral history, but we didn't, we didn't see it. Was he really Irish? Oh, yes. <laughs> Is there anyone else here? Wait, let me get someone in the back. So she was in her 20s, she was about, in 1865, she was about in her early 20s. And she actually, one of the really remarkable finds um, that I was, uh, just remarkable, was that I was able to find two people who knew her. And that's really astonishing if you consider that Melvinia was born in 1844. Um, But she lived a long time, she lived until 1938. And so I found um, two people who knew her. It was uh, the woman who married her grandson who lived with her in the 1930s. And um, uh, she died in that woman's arms. And a man uh, who was a neighbor uh, who lived in the community um, in, in Kingston, Georgia, which is in Bartow County. And it was one of those moments when I really realized that you know, we think so much of this history being consigned uh, to the history books. But, you know, I held the hands of a woman who held Melvinia. And it just shows you that it's not that far. And unfortunately, those two people have died since um, since I met them. Oh, there are, lot, there are lots of uh, <laughs> many books about the, but there has there has been interesting research done into um, his ancestry too, and he has Irish ancestry, um, and then obviously his family, his father's family is from Kenya, and um, his siblings, um, uh, his cousins from from Kenya have written uh, books, and his sister actually has written a children's book. There are lots of uh, books on uh, the president. The earliest record that is a solid, solid record is probably 1850 for the mixed race ancestors, the jumper family on, um, I mean, this is for the black, I mean, the white uh, you know, for white Americans, it's much easier. So I can track those white, um, ancestors back to the early 1800s, even a little into the 1700s. But, um, as you may know, African Americans, if you were enslaved, didn't appear in the census until eighteen seventy, and newspapers were not chronicling um their lives. People said, "Oh, what about letters and journals?" Well, you know, uh, slaves were barred from reading and writing, so they weren't those those sources but so for on her on for the black ancestors. Some of the Jumper family, uh, direct descendants, direct ancestors were jumpers who lived in Virginia and and appear in the 1850 census because they were free. Melvinia appeared in 1852, uh, I'm sorry, 1850 in a record also, um, but it was a will of her owner. She was about six years old, and her owner in Spartanburg mentioned her in a will. He owned about 20 odd slaves. And she was uh, only one of three that he mentioned. So I think that they were fond of her, that she was close to them in some way. Um, There are other members of the family that that I think, you know, there are a lot of questions. For instance, on her father's side, her uh, great-grandmother's name was Rosella Cohen. And when that first article ran, a lot of people wrote in saying, oh, wow, is there Jewish ancestry there? And um, there's some intriguing... um, hints of uh, connection to a prominent Jewish family that lived in Georgetown, South Carolina, the Cohen family. And they were very prominent. They were in the state legislature. They, you know, some members met George Washington. They held very prominent positions in um, civic society there, civil society there, and they were slave owners. Now, I think uh, Rosella's father, her parents, look most likely to be Caesar and Tyra Cohen, but and and that suggests to me that perhaps Caesar was owned by these Jewish Cohens. But I don't know for sure because um, the um, Rosella we don't. I've never been able to find a death certificate for uh, Rosella. I don't know a hundred percent. Who her parents were, so it's one of those intriguing connections, and it's very interesting because the Cohens were members of a, a a synagogue in Charleston, which became the um, birthplace of the American Reform movement here in the United States. So it would be great to make that link, but sometimes you can't. Everybody has an answer. <laughs> To me, the significance is that it's our story. And in fact, what's most meaningful to me is that it is so ordinary. It is the story of so many of us, and it shows the history of this country. And so to me that's what's most significant about it is that through this family you can really see kind of what has happened in this country over time. And so many of us have these stories in our families and I, those of us who are black, those of us who are white, those of us who are somewhere in between. And I ended up feeling so, one of my big passions um, is to tell people talk to your old people now, you know look for those records because, you know, the first lady's family was amazing, right? And we often write books about our presidents and first ladies, but, you know, her people were sharecroppers and cobblers and domestics and postal clerks and Pullman porters, and they moved bit by bit, some moving forward and falling back, and it's ordinary people like them, and like those Irish-American shields who struggled and made this country what it, was, what it is. And sometimes it's, um, it's not easy history, right? So, you know, some people would rather not look. And people said, you know, leave the dead to the dead. But I think we have to look if we want to understand ourselves. And so that's what I hope people get, get from it. That's right. Right. uh, Right. One of the things, you know, so one of the, the, the difficult questions that remains unanswered in the book is what happened to Melvinia, right? And this is something that the white descendants really struggled with was, you know, was she raped or not? Did someone in their family um, rape a young girl? She was about 15 or 16 when she had Dolphus. And, um, you know, it was a long time ago, one, um, but two, the people who knew Melvinia said she never talked about it. She, they knew, they knew her, they knew those children, Dolphus and Henry, who is another character, another member of uh, the First Lady's family who I feel great fondness toward, Um, they knew that she was a dark-skinned woman and that she had these very light-skinned children. They suspected that she had, that they had a white father, but no one talked about it. She didn't talk about it. They didn't talk about it. And um, Dolphus, on his death certificate, um, named Melvinia, which he um, was known as Maddie, and the question of her marriage, I'll talk tell you about too. So his mother appears, Melvinia appears there, um, but under father someone wrote don't know. So there's been a question too of whether he knew who his father was. Though a really intriguing thing is that one of Charles's, the white great-great-great-grandfather, the one we think anyway is, one of his sons moved to Birmingham and lived there around the same time that Dolphus did. In fact in the 20s um, this uh, half-brother of Dolphus's lived uh, within a uh, walking distance of Dolphus's carpentry shop, which had um, his name, Shields, uh, D.T. Shields in big letters in front. And um, he raised, Dolphus raised a young woman from, uh, took her in. She was from a struggling family. And she told me that um, he had a regular white visitor, which was very rare at the time and that he told her that it was his brother and that she should never speak of it and that he was the only white man who was at the funeral. So whether this was, you know, this man, I don't, I don't know. Um, Melvinia, there are some hints that she might have married because she appears in the census as with the surname Magruder later in her life, um, and I just was never able to find a a, a wedding, a marriage license for her. Yes. Where did the name Dolphus come from? It's a really good question. It's actually um, Adolphus Theodore Shields, and I have no idea. Sometimes the names uh, in these families repeat, particularly on the White Shield side. So another thing that makes um, the Shields family hopeful that this was not just a violent situation was that... Um, the names of their, in their family repeat in the First Lady's family. Melvinia had a son by the name of Henry, and the First Lady's mother's name is Marion. And so um, Charles's middle name is Marion, Charles Marion Shields. The other thing that is complicated about Melvinia's story is that in this 1870 census, she, she continued to have mixed-race children after the war when she was a free woman. And so there has been among the white descendants, some hope that that meant perhaps they formed some sort of uh, relationship, that it wasn't just rape, that it was something that endured. And um, we just don't know, and and that could be true. The other thing that they think is that um, Dolphus ended up being far more successful than anyone, any of his siblings. He became a carpenter, and that trade carried him farther than anyone else in that family and you know people like to think perhaps his father taught him that on the other hand you could think that you know in 1870 melvinia had you know four children i think under the age of under the age of 10 and maybe she wanted to move and couldn't with young children and we all know about um, domestic victims of domestic violence who seem like they could just walk away and don't, so we really don't know, but there are a lot of intriguing questions, and some of the black and white descendants, as you might imagine, hope that it was not what happened most frequently on these farms. Uh, you may have asked this, mm-hmm. how many children did Melvinia have that, that lived? That's you know, she had... She had in eighteen seventy she had four and then she had at least two more after eighteen seventy and I have only been able to track um Dolphus and Henry and Laura. The the three other children that she had listed in the, the sense I'm sorry, no that's not right. Um I've been able to track Let's see, so it's five of the seven. The, the girls I lost, and that happens if you don't know who they married. And so I don't know whether they died or they married, and I just couldn't track them down. So the number was seven. So let me think if I'm adding right. Six. So at least, at least six. At least six. And I was able to, and, and two of them were girls, so four of the six I was able to track. Okay, and someone who hasn't, I think you haven't asked. I have to say that uh, we are one of the only groups that did not
0: immigrate to America. Yeah. The side where the mixing came in mm-hmm. was they
1: immigrated, Yeah. we did not. Yeah.
0: Uh, women could not be as selective as to how and when they had children at that time until the laws were changed. You didn't have marriage licenses and versus
1: It's very, yeah, actually, there were, it, there are marriage licenses that, for instance, Dolphus you could, it, and it depends on where you are, it's, it makes it hard, but yeah. Dolphus had uh, marriage certificates uh, in the 1800s, yeah. but it's hard, it's, it's hard. They have excellent land, right? Yeah. We were of land. That's right, and it's a horrible thing when you look at that, yep. If you couldn't work, you didn't come here at first, place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that was what really was interesting, too. They did, but there was a
0: whole group that did not slavery even before
1: the Civil War. Yeah, because some came as indentured servants, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. It is a varied experience, but you're right. The problem with records is a real one, and the fact is that it's it's very painful when you look through these records and realize that often where you have your best chance of, of finding um, people is you know in inventories of where property records you know yeah well I think I'm going to sign some books <laughs> thank you.